Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question, and unpack the rest. This week, we're talking about how are early stage founders thinking about this downturn? We've been talking a lot about layoffs at large, and most recently, I wrote about VCs writing their own black swan memos. We all know Sequoias and how that aged well, or not so well. But we wanted to bring in the perspective of a founder and actually get kind of an on-the-ground scene and look into what it's like to be in the seat of a decision maker right now. As always, I have the wonderful Alex Wilhelm to talk it through with me. Alex, how are you? I just want to be clear here. I'm really glad I'm not an early-stage decision maker because it sounds stressy as hell right now and hard pass on that one. (laughs) It's actually like my perfect segue to use whenever I ask a founder a hard question. It's like, this is why I'm not a founder. But since you are, please answer this very difficult and not at all easy to answer question. What was your burn rate the last month? (laughs) And then you just stop talking and wait. (laughs) Well, as we're kind of alluding to, it's not just us on the show this week. We have the wonderful Josh Ogundu, the co-founder and CEO of Heart to Heart, a new startup. He is someone that I have followed on Twitter and talked to throughout this pandemic. Josh, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off by giving people a little bit of an understanding of who you are as a person, because you actually underscore a really interesting route to becoming a founder. You left TikTok to start a company kind of in the social communication, get to know each other space. And so it really is kind of a pandemic story in its heart. So tell us a little bit about your route to Heart to Heart and what it is. Yeah. So my route to Heart to Heart is that I've always wanted to build things and have built things that like meant to connect people. My first startup was called Like Me. I founded that when I first got out of undergrad. We launched it the week after I actually walked across the stage. And that was looking to connect people who have similar identities and interests in their area so they can grow their networks out of the schools they go to and companies they work at. So that's primarily where a lot of our connections tend to come from. Heart to Heart came from, we're in the pandemic. I was like, okay, like, I feel like there's a resurgence of consumer social. Me being at TikTok at the time and then seeing Clubhouse pop up. We saw Dispo. Who else we have? We got Paparazzi. It was a whole bunch of like consumer social isn't solved, which is what I thought back then. Exactly, exactly. Consumer social felt fun again. It felt like, okay, there's new entrants that can like, you know, make things happen in, in the market. So what ended up going to heart to heart was just like, okay, like I think it's a good time for consumer social. I've learned a lot from building consumer products over the years. Let me go out and do this thing. I wanted to leverage the function of voice. So heart to heart is an audio first dating app that lets people get to know you via the stories that you tell and then the conversation that you have. So the heart to heart profile is photo only. You have to upload uh, a photo and talk about it. So the first one is the overview of yourself. The second photo is something that you like to do. So like, I think how you spend your time tells a lot about compatibility when it comes down to people. And then the third one is something that you're glad that you did. That gives you like a peek into someone's past. And I feel like people's past inform a lot of how they connect in the present and what they want in the future. So that's kind of what we were doing with Heart to Heart now. That's kind of us. What happens though, Josh, if you don't have something that you're proud of in your past? What, what do you <laughs> put in the third picture? Like a, like a, like a blank Canvas? You just you just you just have, you just keep the question mark and be like you know what my my present my past is not who I am and, and we'll make some we'll make some we'll make some new memories now that's what we're gonna do. No, I, I love it. The best is yet to come. No, I mean I feel like on one end I'm sure immediately you building I guess you guys launched about a year ago or launched to the public and that happened a year ago. Yeah, we launched to the public in February, so we're like like okay. four months old, three four months old now. Oh my God, that feels like a year ago. (laughs) (laughs) Pandemic time does not count. We all know this. It's totally fine. (laughs) 
I think the first time that TechCrunch covered you guys was with your raise. So seven months ago, Heart to Heart raised 750K. It was led by Precursor, a friend of the pod, as well as a bunch of other interesting investors. Since, has there been any other milestones that people should know about? Or is the fundraising kind of it for now? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for us that I think was a milestone just for like us internally at the company was we started actually with photo. We had photo imprompts. And we saw that overwhelmingly people wanted to tell stories behind photos that they had in their phone versus answering prompts. Like people have seen um, hinges prompts went viral and things of that nature. So that was a really big opening thing for us. So we actually started slimming down the offering versus like adding new features. We started slimming down based on what we saw. Um, so I think that was probably like the biggest thing for us. We're primarily focused on growing the user base here in LA. As people know, dating apps, need to have localized density in order to serve value to the user. So we are in LA, we're in New York, focus really on LA growing there, and then want to copy paste our playbook um, growing in LA to then New York. That's kind of like the biggest milestones over the last few months. Okay, perfect. Well, let's kind of leave the scene there, I guess, and pivot to today and this broader context of early stage founders kind of being under the spotlight a little bit. On one end, there's a lot of late stage investors that are now eyeing companies such as Heart to Heart as like maybe places that are protected from the public market correction. But there's also early stage investors telling me that it's getting a lot more disciplined. So I wanted to get a vibe check from you and I guess keep it really broad and See how you're feeling right now as a founder amid a market downturn on every corner. Yeah, I think everybody should be aware of that. Like, as, even if you're like a, an earlier stage company, someone who's like pre-series A, just because we're not going to be the ones who are getting hit the hardest doesn't mean the fundraising environment hasn't changed for us at all. You know, diligence on what, what, what they're doing might be a little bit tougher than previous. The way I was felt about it, it was like, you need to be super honest about like what's happening with your company. You don't want to be the person who's like expecting that you'll be able to raise at X amount of valuation or get X amount of money quickly. And that's that applies to like all of us. It's like if you're going to be honest about if something's working or not, this is the best time to do it, especially if you have runway. If you have runway, at least like anywhere from six to 12 months of runway, be honest now versus trying to be honest later. And that's kind of what I've done doing at Heart to Heart. And I've always thought about this, but I thought about it definitely going into the summer. It's like, I'm going to be super brutally honest about like what things we're doing that are actually working, which ones aren't working, and like making decisive cut decisions or growth decisions as we need to. So you raised last October, raised 750, investing the money you know, through the end of the year into the start of this year. Things change. Have your operational plans changed at Heart to Heart? Have you changed like your hiring cadence or kind of curtailed certain costs to kind of extend that runway so you have that six or 12 months that you're talking about? Yeah. So for us, I definitely was like the team we have now is the only team that we need until we go and raise our next round of financing. Like I'm not hiring anybody else. Yeah. There are certain things that I am curtailing. Like we had some external folks we were working with on an agency perspective. We might curtail that. So it's like me saying like, okay, what cash do we have in the bank? What milestones do we need to hit? And yeah. do we have the team in place that we need to do it with? That's how I feel right now. Like, I don't feel like we need to hire anybody else until like later on, which is, feels really good because if I had to go out and feel like, oh, we don't have enough people, I need to now hire another person, which will cut into runway and things of that nature. So yeah. that's kind of way that I've looked at it. But I, I do think you got to be real about like, hey, you know, even if you're hiring people, like, do you need to hire them as full-time employees? Should right. you lean into contractors more? Like there's like a balance of like the kind of employment that you might need at the stage that we're at and, and other companies are. 
No, it's fascinating. I'm really curious about milestones and things that you're aiming towards to accomplish with your current staff size, capital base, and kind of product approach. Because, you know, if this was May of 2021, I would say, why don't you go out and raise $50 million? Because why not? But now I think I'm thinking more about like things you can accomplish with your current capital. So are the targets things like download numbers, active users? What's the metric you're trying to accomplish against with your current capital? I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, for us, we're just looking to, we want to continue growing the user base here in LA and, and connecting not only installs, but mainly retention. Like how often are people coming back to the platform? Like yeah. for us, we're looking at like, we want to be anywhere from D0 to D30 retention. We want to be like 25% plus. So like someone came in June 1st, we want 25% plus of those people to still be on the application by the end of the month. And like with smaller user numbers in the earlier days, I think that's a good signal. Like you can have like a quarter or more people still being on your dating app. You can continue growing and growing and growing like that. So at bare minimum, 25% plus, and then going from there and really making sure we're bringing in the right kinds of Folks that we want to grow the ecosystem, the thing with consumer social, from dating apps to friend finders and things of that nature, who you bring in initially sets the tone of the experience. And we want to make sure we're being very careful about, like, let's not do just grow with anybody and anyone. It could impact us materially down the line when it comes down to growth, which unfortunately has happened for other consumer social applications that folks may be aware of on the on the uh, pod. Yeah, You know, I never thought about this, but you're right. In the dating app game, your user cohorts must have interesting factors like a no jerk factor. You know, like you can't have too many felons or murderers. (laughs) When I think about cohorts, usually I think about like, you know, like enterprise SaaS customers from a particular quarter or whatever. This is much more squishy and difficult. Yes. (laughs) I just realized how hard consumer is. That is like a thunderclap in my head. That was honestly like a question I kind of had for all of us, which is like, is there a sweet spot of a company to be in right now? Like, I'm sure there's a sector. There's also probably a stage, but I imagine that if you're not a moonshot company right now, like you're not someone that is trying to disrupt an entire habit and maybe has more reliable revenue or a not squishy user base. Like you probably are getting like a lot of inbound or maybe not as many red flags from your investors stressing out about how you're doing. So in that way, I'm like, I think one worry I've always had is like, if a downturn happens, are we going to see the more exciting companies or the more ambitious companies start to disappear because they're not getting those lifelines of support because they're not going to be having the revenue yet or the trust, I guess, to deliver down the road. I mean, it comes down to risk, right? And the risk, risk averse, I think, is like the common reaction to any macro event, positive or negative somehow. Well, that's a good question. So Josh, you know, as risk aversion goes up amongst the investing class, do you think that consumer social, and I ask you this with with politeness and and a hug if I can, will consumer social lose some of its shine? from the uh, kind of investing perspective, because it's more risky than perhaps doing some very boring enterprise SaaS work. Yeah, I think, the bar, I think the bar is probably higher for folks that are building in consumer social or just like things that need to get to a different kind of scale to like make revenue and stuff like that. I think the bar looks like, are you building something in consumer social that have signs of product market fit that can be super sticky? Like, is it changing the way that people yeah. can create online consume online, things of that nature. I think those kinds of companies that can prove that out can win. I mean, we have some breakouts that are happening now, like with Be Real and Lock It and stuff like that, which are showing like different types of ways that, you know, you can create consumer social that that sticks. I'm not a Be Real or Lock It user myself, but it, they, they're both doing really well in the app Wait, store. Wait, why not Be Real? I feel like Be Real so your vibe. 
Um, I don't really like. I'm, you know, funny enough, as someone who's like makes TikToks, but also yeah. is very active on Twitter. I actually don't like doing that random spontaneity shit with people. Like, I'm very it. structured fun. I'm a very structured fun person, which is why those like, oh, do it now or, you know, do this consistently kind of thing doesn't work out well for me because I'm a very structured fun person. I, I actually like, preach. <laughs> now I'm thinking also, I'm like, yeah, I want to know, like, who are the structured fun people in my life? Like, who is the type to have a Snapchat streak? Who's not the type to have a Snapchat streak? I used to be the streak person, but I stopped. I just stopped. <laughs> Those things happen. Those things happen to us. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no. Alex, on your question, yeah, I think the the bar is a little bit higher. But if you can prove that what you're building is sticky and retention is there, especially yeah. if you're building something that is not going to be so reliant on followers or following or anything like that, which is more ad revenue based, if you can feel like you're building out something that's like more intimate, that you can build subscription rev on top. Like, I think those are the more interesting consumer social businesses. I think the ones that are just trying to build for eyeballs probably will not get as much attention as people would hope. Yeah, that checks out with what I was thinking, because when we consider the the dating space in particular as kind of one slice of consumer social, I'm thinking about Match Match Group. I'm thinking about Bumble. You know, these are public companies that have reached, I just pulled it up, you know, Bumble's worth $5.3 right now, which is a lot of money. And right. I think that dating inside of consumer social has shown that users will pay for Tinder boosts and Tinder, what are the things on Tinder? What are they called? Gold, Sorry. Tinder Gold. I Tinder mean- Gold? Sure. There we go. Tinder gold is Tinder one of gold, my yeah. yeah. Sorry. I, now, that I, now that I'm married. Good thing we're on dating apps, Alex. <laughs> yeah. This is, we brought Josh on because we, I mean, Tasha and I are experts on the current crop of dating apps. The point is people will pay for them. So I can see how, yeah. how Heart to Heart has a, a really easy way to explain to investors. Like, look, you know, here's some comps. Here's how it works out. Here's our growth. That makes sense to me. I'm just worried that we're going to lose some of the more wacky things on the sidelines that might have been able to raise money last year as investors do become a bit more focused on like near-term revenue growth. And they become less venture capitalists and more like little adventure capitalists. They're like you know, just less risk tolerant or whatever. Yeah, no, I can like, definitely see that. Do you feel like you've changed your tone with investor memos or just like talking to precursor? Are you starting to be a little bit more like, I don't want to say rational because I'm sure you always were, but a little more sober minded. Yeah, sure. Sure. That. Yeah. So like on our investor updates, I send investor updates every month for the folks that are on the cap table. And what I tell them is like what I'm seeing, whether it's like, okay, I feel like this is working well, this is working well, this is how I think the macro environment might look at heart to heart on the next round. I've always been pretty, I've used the word like, I've been rational, but like I'm not so attached to heart to heart that I can't see it through clear eyes. I think you got to be able to be able to look at your like company and your product and look at it like not only from the lens of like the founder, but like the lens of the investor. And luckily I've done some like VC related stuff in the past. So that also adds to like, my lens on how I look at it. So I always like give updates from the lens of like, I build from a founder lens, but I also look at like, okay, are we doing things that makes us an investable, attractive place to put capital into, which I think has been helpful for the way that I've navigated conversations with folks on the cap table now. Yeah. And by the way, if you want to add equity pod at techrunch.com to your cap table email list, we would not <laughs> complain about getting those updates. Just a small idea. Just throw it out there. I, you know, I'm going to take a note. I'm going to take a note. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually worked for me before. Like there's one VC from who shall remain unnamed that has CC'd me. And I don't know why, but I feel like it's just like consistent intel. And I'm like, I'm just never going to, never going to ask too many questions about it. Yeah. Whenever I get <laughs> something like that, I'm always like, was I supposed to be given this? I don't think oh, so. Oh my God. No? Yeah. And if it's from like a friend, it's like, I don't, uh, is this work? Is this not work? Anyways, that's it's one like, thing. Are you complaining or are you tipping me? Right. Yeah. Anything. <laughs> uh, Josh, the, the sentiment out there on Twitter where the three of us spend a lot of time has too much time, too much time, really 
not enough time, really, has definitely <laughs> turned. And I'm talking not just investors, not just venture capitalists, but you know, founders, operators, hiring managers. There, there has been a shift from kind of like max greed to a little bit of oh shit. And I'm curious if, from where you sit as a person who has been hiring lately, is building in the market, has sentiment become too negative compared to where the world really is? In my view, I think it has become too negative. I think it's easier to do doom and gloom versus give rational, balanced opinions on things. I think people, it's very easy to say, everything's going to hell. We're all going to be like, everybody's getting laid off, freezes. No one's going to be able to raise capital. Your company's going to die. It's very easy to paint a very bleak picture when you see some macro signals that do that. What would be more interesting, and I think we should do, is really give tactical advice on how to navigate it through the lens of positivity and optimism in the way that tech always tries to be. Tech always tries to say, like, we're the optimists, we're pragmatists, we're optimists, we're logical, but we can see the future in positive lights and all that kind of stuff. And it feels like a lot of folks across the board have lost that energy, which is not yeah. good to lose that energy because if anytime you need that energy, you need things when it's more bleak versus when it's bright. So... That's the kind of way I would describe like the whole, not only Twitter discourse, but even offline, folks are feeling a, a little bit different about the industry uh, as a whole. It also feels like a lot of manifestation is happening. This was a kind of a conversation yesterday on tech Twitter where it was like, are investors like secretly colluding to bring down valuation prices? Or like, is it okay that it hasn't yet trickled down to seed? I think it's obviously gonna be a lot more complicated than like this like secret group chat, but I'm sure those secret group chats exist. And it's really hard to like know if you're being impacted. It's similar to like, life is hard for diverse founders. And you can keep saying that, but like you're also making it a reality by reminding them that every time they do something good. I remember Sarah Koons mentioned that to me from Clio Capital. She was like, people often will kind of highlight me as, unconventional. And so it's kind of like perpetuating things that you think are true, even though they haven't yet been true. I don't know if that necessarily right. feels like we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. And I think you also gave us a really good segue into how investors at large are communicating about the doom and gloom. Well, I think that's a great point though, Natasha, because I think last year, so many VCs talked themselves into paying 150x ARR for a company that was never going to be the yeah. next Slack, but they were like, well, TAM's getting larger and have you seen the cloud progression? Woo! It's going to be up forever and millions of dollars for everybody. And they manifested that and now they're manifesting the other side of it. I think what Josh is advocating for, if I could speak for him, is something slightly in the middle between max fear and max greed, because I feel like we just slap between these two sides of the pendulum. And honestly, I, I you know, I think we're tired. all like subtweeting the YC memo at this point. So let's talk about that because why <laughs> YC, I mean, a gift that our own Manish broke the news that YC sent this internal memo to founders. It was like 10 bullet points of like rules and thoughts on how to navigate this economic downturn. And very poetically, that internal memo came just, you know, months, if not weeks after YC's latest demo day happened. And a bunch of these startups had gotten the biggest check that YC's ever given at high valuations. Us three know it. And I'm sure if you're listening to Equity, you um you know YC's deal. But I wanted to get, I guess, everyone's thoughts. I'll go last on the YC memo so far. I'll share the top standout quotes, in my opinion. One was, you can often pick up significant market share in an economic downturn by just staying alive. And it was kind of the concept of being default alive as a startup. Another standout was, plan for the worst and no one can predict how bad the economy will get, but things don't look good. They also talked about how investors can kind of give the semblance of being active, but they're not actually active. I mean, a lot to dig into there, but Josh, first reactions to when you saw that memo kind of come to light. So for me, for the YC memo, I like the default alive one is the thing that stuck out the most to me. You don't really always ask yourself as a company, are we default alive or are we default dead? I think they're default alive. I think the definition, Natasha, let me know if this is different than what is actually there, because I think it might be. They're talking about like, you know, if you weren't able to raise 
another round right now, would you be able to keep your company alive after like the money that you make? Was that what they were talking about? Yeah, I think about? they were saying about? like, make sure that actually. I, I think there's this uh, old PG yes. memo about being like, every startup is default dead, I think. And so you have to like keep them alive and afloat. So to become default alive would be to be kind of unkillable, which would be to be of sufficient scale that you could always raise another 5 million yes. compared to your heft or your free cash flow. Exactly. No, that's the, that's the one that stuck out the most to me because I was like, yeah, you should think about that from like, okay, like if we really needed to not raise another round for X amount of time, could we stay? I took default alive like, how long can you stay alive until you might need to raise? Because sure. at a pre-seed and seed level, you're going to raise another round. Like, that's going to happen anyway. You, you want to stay default alive until you can do that. I think being default alive without having any extra capital coming to your company, that's more of a later stage company kind of question. People who are like B plus, I feel like for me, that stuck out for me. And if overall, the main, another thing that stuck out for me is like, I feel like at least the default alive thing and other parts of it, we're trying to give tactical advice outside of a bunch of like, you're not going to be able to raise at this. You're not going to be able to this. You're not going to be able to this. Not going to this. Like we need more funds and more people giving tactical mm-hmm. advice and not just like painting this overall theme of doom and gloom and like, hey, founders, y'all got to figure was it a out. Weird, it was a weird thing because on one end, it never hurts for like a VC firm to publish a black swan memo of sorts because like the worst that will happen is that they were wrong and their startups became more disciplined. But when it comes to like YC, for example, this was an internal memo. It wasn't something that they, you know, PR'd the hell out of. And so I was kind of expecting <laughs> a more specific sort of here's what to do next. We, we saw 24 months, I think, pop up. We saw runway start to be a conversation again. But I agree with you that like, and maybe it's because it, their companies are so diverse that I'm kind of waiting for like a more specific guidance. Right. Yeah. So when I think about the memo, I, I just go back in time to how valuations have changed for early stage companies. YC used to take, I think it was 6% for like 20K, mm-hmm. give or take. So valuing you at kind of the low six figures. And then it became 7% for 125, which meant that your valuation was effectively north of a million, which is like a five. I mean, I'm not, I'm doing the math in my head, like five, six X increase in kind of a YC valuation. Then you layer on some more capital, uncapped safe, most favored nation. And suddenly the company has enough capital to get in trouble, but then it has a valuation. It probably can't defend as easily, especially when things change. So when I read this YC memo, I'm like, wow, you're really advocating companies to be conservative and only raise the money they need at prices that make sense. And yet a month ago, you were like literally singing in a different key. And I can tell when the drums slow down and who's playing them. And in this case, uh, you know, my favorite quote is pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And I feel like everyone became more hoggish than piggish. And this is what happens. So I'm not shocked by it, but it does seem to be a little bit non Yeah, it's like ironic. It was kind of a, a gift to journalists though, because I got to completely call I, out the irony and I was very happy about that. I, I, I want to be clear. <laughs> We're also sympathetic to the fact that, like, given the clout of YC in the market, it's a little tough to get people to comment oh, yeah. on them directly. For example, I was writing a story about this area this morning, and we pinged a venture capitalist at a firm that I know and talk to a lot. And they were willing to, like, answer our questions, but they deliberately avoided saying YC. They were like mini accelerators. And I was like, yep. And that's clout right there. So if Josh isn't popping off right now, I'm sure he will the moment we start recording, but he's being smart. So that's just a data point about the uh, So there was one very specific example that I did see come up, which was Lightspeed Ventures. They actually very publicly posted something on Medium titled The Upside of a Downturn. I appreciate the pun. And so the thing that stood out to me in that memo was that Lightspeed essentially was like, 
here are the non-essential activities that you should be considering to potentially stop or scale back. And they're including new marketing channels, hiring new engineers to build product extensions or entering a new geography. To me, I guess those were like the most specific examples I've seen of things that startups may stop doing beyond layoffs, which I thought was like very important to hear because as we kind of talked to earlier in the pod, layoffs are like this very visible and clear and thing that gets naturally leaked when they happen. But there are so many things that lead up to a layoff. Ideally, ideally is a weird way to put it. There are so many different ways that a company can scale back and lessen how much it's spending than taking people off of its bankroll. And so I'm hoping we see more of that, like the savvy ways to cut back because people is just the fastest and most expensive. But maybe I'm simplifying it. Yeah, Josh, when you look at... (laughs) I mean, I think we have to simplify because we're taking a complex world and putting it into a couple of words. But Josh, when you look at your, um, I don't know what you use for accounting software, but like, let's just call it a spreadsheet for lack of a better phrase. When you look at your spreadsheet, how much fat is there that you could cut if you had to, to reduce spend, to increase runway by a chunk? The unfortunate thing of us, we need everybody we got. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's our, that's our thing. Um, Cause we have, we have, we're like a really, we're a decently small team. Like we're like, it's like a team of five. Yeah. Mainly engineers. Like we have, Four engineers, myself, and then, oh, we do have two contractors on the marketing side. So it's like seven of us. But like when I look at like our burn, our burn is decently low. So like I'm like not super concerned there. There was a time where I was like, oh, like at least for me, when it comes down to cutting the fat, it's never like a fixed expense. Like salaries are fixed expenses. You know, SaaS, you can cut that kind of stuff. There were expenses that I did in the past, more like variable, like one-offs, that I was like, hmm. That might have been not the best use of cash at that point, but that's okay. You live and you learn because you do the thing. You're like, ah, I could have saved that money. But for me, like I'm very big on making sure that our fixed expenses are low. And if we do do higher like variable expenses, we're like, okay, this is a one-off that we can like, it's not going to be part of our burn rate every single month. But yeah, for us, it's like, there's nothing else I could cut. Even if I thought about it, I was like, yeah, there's nothing else we I could mean, cut I mean, that's music point. to investors' ears right now because everyone's like, become lean, yeah. become green. I mean, and that's kind of like the interesting part about raising seven months ago, something that wasn't like a 200 million Series A. Having kind of conservative resources through a downturn is probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, 750 is not a whole no. bunch of money, realistically, when you think about it. Even for no. a pre-seed, because like, everybody else is raising like, what, 1.3, 1.4 pre-seeds? Yeah. We raised like not a bunch of money in the first place. So we couldn't be non-disciplined even if I wanted to. All right. <laughs> I, I didn't want to ask this because it just, it felt like we're glad you're on the show, you know, but like, why didn't you raise more? I mean, it was like October. The music was still playing. You got Charles Hudson on the cap <laughs> table. The man's got money. Like I was better to invest, Josh. You should have just asked him. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. I should have went. I, I when I look back on it, I was like, I probably should have went harder. But I felt like, and I was being conservative in my own head. I was like, okay, seven fifty. What we're building, we can get it done off of seven fifty real quick, and then we raise the seed like real quick after that. So now going forward, I will always tell founders that they should definitely raise more than they think they do because you'll usually need more money than you think you do. So for me, if I could go back in time, definitely would have at least pushed it to like at least one or 1.1. Mm. That gives you like fundamentally a different type of runway. But you know, you live and you learn and then, you know, I'm going to approach the seed differently than Does I the advice the track of raising more than you expect in this market. I guess I want to end with a little bit of like Josh's advice for founders as like founder to founder, what you kind of want people to think the no bullshit. Yeah, I think in this environment, one, be honest if your company is working or not. And usually building more stuff is not going to make you any stickier or make you more money. More often than not, you might just be directionally wrong. 
So you might need to figure out what is working and double down on that. Like slimming versus bloating the offering usually is what people should do. When it comes down to fundraising, take money at the price that you need to take it at. You know, maybe you won't get that 15x valuation that you really want to get. But staying alive is more important than like a short-term valuation because if you're thinking long-term, you'll be able to make that up on the back end as you grow the business. And then like the last thing is cut things. It's okay to cut things. Think really, really, really hard before you cut people. Like think really hard about that because that doesn't only take away the person, but it could have a morale effect around the rest of the company that you didn't have to manage against. So I think those are like the three things that I want people to like take away when it comes down to the And I wanted to just follow up on that last point specifically. When you say layoffs can have more of an impact than just that one person, could you be more specific on kind of what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like for us, had to let somebody go that just wasn't working out well and brought somebody else in that is working well. The person who was not working well was actually taking away energy from the team. So like getting them out of there was actually good. But if you took away a star player due to cash reserve reasons, that can make the whole rest of the team deflate and feel weird about it. Versus like, if you have someone who's like, okay, we're paying you X amount a month and you're not really doing what you need to do, just let them go quick. Like I'm very big on like fire people quickly or you know, the easier thing to do, set the expectations and let them know if they can meet them or not. Like be honest about this is what I'm expect. Be very specific about what you expect. And then like, yo, if they can't do it, they'll know if they can't do it. Cause you'll be, you've been very, 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 explicit. So that's kind of way that I would look at it. Like when it comes down to like firing, layoffs, all that kind of stuff, especially the smaller companies, know what laying off would do to your company. Like if you lay off somebody and it only extends your runway by like two months, it's not even worth it at that point. It's not even really worth it. Like I know people do like the Hail Marys and like, oh, two months left of cash. We built this one thing and now it made us investable and stuff like that. That's more than likely not going to happen. So it's always good to like, you know, Cutting people when it only gives you like a month or two more of one way doesn't really do anything. Honestly, at that point, you're probably going to die anyway. So like, it's, 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 it's you might as well die with a full <laughs> staff. You know what? Why die in an empty room? Die with your friends. <laughs> that's, how, that's how you got to look at it. But if it extends it like by three or four months, that's a different conversation. Okay. You can do some stuff then. But one or two months, it's like. I don't know, give that person a Hail Mary project to do and see if they make it work. I don't know, but it doesn't always make sense to cut people when it doesn't extend your one way Yeah, I mean, wow. it's hard. I like, I, I want to end with like the vibe check of all three of us and I'll start with you, Alex. But I, I think like the reason sure. we really wanted to have you on, Josh, was like a little bit of what you said of like, there's so much doom and gloom. It's easy to draw trends. We literally have a weekly column on the late, most recent layoffs on TechCrunch. Everyone is writing about it and talking about it, us included. And so we wanted to get like a more human and maybe realistic perspective on it. And this feels like a good way to end, which is like, what have we learned from talking to a founder? And what have you learned from talking to two journalists um, who are reporting on it? But Alex, you go first. So the first startup I worked, well, the second startup I worked for, I was laid off because everyone got laid off because it ran out of money. So I've been through that. I've also shut a company down and that was miserable. I've also been an executive company that had its various ups and downs. And so I'm sympathetic to what Josh is talking about. And also very glad that I'm not currently going through dealing with the market correction while building because it's, it's stressy. But I think it's just so good to hear the bits of advice come from a founder versus from us. Natasha yeah. is my main takeaway because it's not only is it more, more cohesively phrased, I think it just carries a lot more weight. And I think to end this on a human note, I'll just say that, that I wish everyone well. 
And I hope that things go as well as they can for all people involved. And that I hope that the workers at companies are as best taken care of as they can be as things shake up. Because having been on the other side of that axe a couple of times, it's miserable and terrifying. And a lot of folks don't have a safety net. So that's kind of my vibe. And I'm looking forward to getting back to making fun of high valuations and ridiculous prices again. That was more fun than talking about companies in trouble. So this is where we are. But if the world wants to get crazy again, I'm, I'm here for I it. I echo a lot of what you said. The only thing I'll add is, in a way, it feels like the promise of tech has somewhat had a reality check in a healthy way. And as a result, honesty feels like a big part of our conversation today. So I'm happy to see that honesty is going to be like a huge priority. I don't think people were out front lying before, but I think they were incentivized to talk in moonshots and to talk in like grandiose statements. So I'm hoping it just kind of creates maybe less a less sexy, but a more realistic vibe. And Josh, it's also great to hear that you're not like entirely deflated right now <laughs> because the VC memos feel yeah. otherwise, I'll be honest. Yeah, I think for me, it's like, I'm motivated by knowing that we're going in the right direction. We've made the right decisions internally, whether it's like staffing, uh, capital allocation, all that kind of stuff to like make us like get through this period in not a weird way. Like it'd be different if I had like a month mm-hmm. left of cash, then that's different. But, you know, being disciplined over time has been very helpful for us and we continue to be so. My last note, I think, would be for this conversation, what I've gotten from it is one, hearing from folks that are like deep in the trenches and hearing around from like a whole bunch of different companies and VCs and things of that nature. What I'll leave for founders is that, you know, no matter what's going to happen with your company, the number one thing you want to do is take care of the people that believed in it early, the people that have left jobs, new grads, all that kind of stuff for people who can't who have not had that safety net yet, what you can best do is make decisions, tough decisions and real decisions that make sure that the company is taken care of as well as the people are taken care of. Those may be popular decisions, they might be unpopular, but take care of the people first is the way that I do it. And don't forget, if you're going to announce your layoffs, don't do it with your Bored Ape Yacht Club Twitter profile picture because then everyone Amen will hate you. to that. <laughs> Josh, thank you for being so transparent and just a blast to have on the show. Tell everyone where they can find you and your company on the internet. Cool. Yeah, you can find me at Joshua Gundu on Twitter and LinkedIn. And then for Heart to Heart, you can just Google Heart to Heart app and we come up. We're based in LA and New York and we're looking at other geographies soon. Thinking about Miami and Atlanta uh, will be the next place that we go to and expand over the summer is what we're looking to do there. And we got some new new stuff coming out later on in June on the platform uh, from a UX UI perspective. So okay, perfect. That feels like that. a TechCrunch exclusive. So just putting that. And yes. <laughs> lovely. And Alex, thank you for always being the best to talk out very hard topics with. I don't know, this was somehow energetic, even though it was somewhat sad. Well, we took three very caffeinated people <laughs> and we right. put them in front of microphones. So it tends to work out that way. But Natasha, thank you for having me on. Josh, so lovely to spend time with you off of Twitter. I'll see you back on Twitter in about three minutes. <laughs> Legit. Everyone else, catch us on Equity on Friday. We'll be talking about all of this, a lot more, and some deals of the week. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. 